Well, if you're going to call corn non-native in the Americas, then everything we eat is non-native, technically, because everything that we eat has been modified for thousands upon thousands of years through throughout our agricultural system and agricultural history. And I think this does bring up a good point, though, because you're right, the way that corn is conventionally grown has very intense impact on the ecosystem. And this is one of the places where organic can come in as a way to mitigate some of those externalities. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Today we are talking all things organic food with Jessica Shade, the Director of Science Programs at the Organic Center, a critical 501c3 nonprofit that conducts a lot of the science and research behind the organic food industry. Their work is used by the Organic Trade Association, key institutions, farmers, policymakers, all the above for the world of organic food. <clears throat> now you've probably bought or have tried to buy organic food. Maybe you've been deterred by the higher prices, or perhaps you wonder, you know, what are the actual standards for food getting the organic label, and how do I know this is not just marketing? Well, today we are answering those questions, and we're going to dive into some, <clears throat> and we're going to dive into a few topics with Jessica, including how organic standards are decided and audited, why organic food is more expensive, and how we make it more affordable going forward. Where the line is drawn on hot button items like GMOs and pesticides, the organic industry's relation with the high emission meat industry, particularly cattle, where the organic industry stands on wild versus farmed pollinators, and the challenges coming ahead for organic classification for things like cell-based meats and vertical crop farming. If you've ever had questions about organic food, this is the episode for you. And if you still have more after listening, Send us an email on the episode details, and we'll send it over to Jessica. All right. What is the definition of organic food, and how do you explain that to people if, if someone asks you, like, you know, in an elevator or something? You know, when it comes to the definition of what organic is, people often focus on what organic isn't. So organic means no GMOs, no synthetic toxic pesticides, no synthetic fertilizers, no antibiotics or growth hormones, no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, no sewage sludge or ionizing radiation. But there's also a lot more to organic about what organic is. And I think it's a little bit more fun to talk about those aspects of organic. So for example, organic farmers need to prove that they're maintaining enhancing and enhancing soil health. They need to protect water quality. They need to maintain biodiversity. And all those things are actually written into the organic standards. So they are required by organic. Organic farmers also use integrative pest management that focuses on things like cultural, biological, mechanical practices to fight pests and weeds. When it comes to animals for livestock, those livestock need to be given 100% organic feed with a large part of their diet coming from pasture, which they're required to have access to and be grazed throughout the grazing season. And then their natural behavior and the health of the animal all have to be taken into consideration. So they need to have access to things like the outdoors, shade, shelter, fresh air. So when it comes to what organic is, I like to talk about those things. Of course, the parts that organic isn't are also important, and they're definitely the ones that people remember more often. But I think there's this other kind of fun, positive component to organic as well. And those those standards on things like soil health, water usage, and biodiversity, I imagine they, they're not uniform across all crops and all agriculture does it do, do they get you know sort of customized towards not just the crop and agriculture but the region and the area like how 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 are those things kind of 
ultimately determine in terms of the actual data points that are used? So the standards themselves don't change. It's a national standard, which is really important when it comes to creating organic products, especially across state lines. But what does change is the organic systems plan. So that's a plan that's created by each organic farm that details how they're going to follow the organic standards and implement them on their farm. So that does get very specific. It gets farm level specific. And then that needs to be approved by an organic inspector. And then it gets reviewed and audited every single year. And sometimes there are even pop quiz audits where an auditor will just show up at your farm and you have to prove that you are following all of the organic standards and adhering to your organic systems plan. One of the topics I want to get into a little bit is GMOs, but just real quick as a precursor to that, because an example, how, how do I think of a crop like corn? And I'm not talking about the sort of natural native, you know, corn, because that's not really what we eat primarily. We primarily eat the corn that people eat, you know, day to day at a backyard barbecue, these kind of things is like, correct me if I'm wrong, it is, has been genetically modified. It's not really a native plant species to the U.S. Uh, We took native corn and we did sort of, you know, kind of modify it through through kind of hybrid breeding and other 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 mechanisms to get to the corn we have today so like is that where does what gets defined as genetically modified or not because i think of corn as a genetically modified crop but is that incorrect in the in the standards that the ota uses yeah so the national organic program defines some processes as being banned for organic use. And when they talk about genetic modification, they're not talking about selective breeding because most crops that you see today, if not all crops, have been selectively bred. So a farmer will go breed two crops together, choose the tastiest or more often the one that produces the highest yield, and then use that in the future and continue breeding to create the desirable traits that we see in all the food that we eat. When they talk specifically about genetic modification, that's using processes that are directly altering the genetic makeup of the plant or animal by using specific scientific tools that directly alter the genes. So going in and altering that DNA. Like in the case of if I'm using a technology like CRISPR, right? I'm directly uh, altering genes. And I'm guessing like that would qualify as like the genetically modified in that definition. But if if I use, you know, kind of selective breeding, I am in theory... I mean, I, I and not just theory. I am practically modifying the genes of this species of of plant. I'm just doing it in a. It's it's more of like the cyst. The way I'm doing it is different than if I go and do you know CRISPR gene editing or I augment it with you know an additive chemical or something. So it's it's more about the system of how something is genetically modified than just purely genetically modified or not. Is that fair to say? It's entirely about the system. And I'd even argue that the term genetic modification, as it's used by most people, is about the system and not about the process of changing a plant over time, because that's selective breeding or artificial selection, if you want to call it that. And I think one of the things that's very different is the timeline that it takes to do that selection. So if you're using CRISPR, you go in, you're changing those genes, you're not sure what you're going to end up with, but you get it really fast. Whereas if you're using selective breeding, you're breeding two plants together or two animals, you're seeing how the offspring turns out. And Another thing that's important to talk about outside of CRISPR is a lot of genetic modification these days also includes bringing genotypes in from other organisms. So that's definitely a part of it to keep in mind, even though, you know, CRISPR doesn't 
always do that, nor does nor do several other GMOs. It's not isolated to that, but that is a part of it. Corn, as an example, it it it's been modified to the point, right, where it's not a native species. And from what I understand, I could be wrong about this. It does it does take a bigger toll on the soil, especially when it's when when it's grown in a kind of monocropping, which is primarily like most 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 corn growers have massive expansive fields of corn. I'm not talking about someone growing corn in their backyard or something. But from what I understand, because it's been modified so much, it does take its toll on the on soil health and therefore there's all this work needed to then, you know, keep make that soil health healthy while still growing corn at scale. And so like where do we well, how should we think about it? What point do we, should we like continue to try to, you know, change practices to make up for, you know, kind of non-native large scale grown plant species like corn versus just saying like, Hey, maybe we just should try to wean off of this particular crop and move towards foods and, and, and crops and agriculture that don't have some of these complications. Well, if you're going to call corn non-native in the Americas, then everything we eat is non-native, technically, because everything that we eat has been modified for thousands upon thousands of years through throughout our agricultural system and agricultural history. And I think this does bring up a good point, though, because you're right, the way that corn is conventionally grown has very intense impact on the ecosystem. And this is one of the places where organic can come in as a way to mitigate some of those externalities. So for example, one of the farmers that I use as the pinnacle of employing organic best practices actually farms corn as one of his rotations. And he has this... um, incredibly complex nine-year rotation that includes corn, it includes legumes, it includes not just annuals, but also perennials like alfalfa, it includes grazing. I mean, it's this very complex rotation that incorporates cover crops as well as cash crops. And if you are doing these complex systems, you can avoid a lot of those negative impacts, even from a crop that gets as bad a rep as corn. Taking a step back, just in terms of your background and way of introduction, kind of simple terms and how how you found yourself in this line of work. Sure. So I don't actually work for the Organic Trade Association. I work for the Organic Center. And the Organic Center is a nonprofit organization. We're kind of like the sister, the research sister organization to the Organic Trade Association. And what we do is we identify gaps in our knowledge. We put together a team to address those areas. We develop projects, find funding to do the actual research, and then communicate the findings to target audiences, which is usually farmers, but also policymakers, consumers, et cetera. And then we use those results to find the next question that needs to be asked so we can build on each project. And then that cycle kind of starts again. And we also do a lot of communication. So outside of our own research collaborations with academic and governmental institutions, we're communicating research that's happening all over the world, really, to to share that information with whether it's consumers, farmers, policymakers, so that they have the information they need to make educated decisions about their actions. And how is this something like, how did you find yourself in this field? Is is it something you, you know, kind of grew up around agriculture and something that's been in, in your family or in, you know, kind of bloodline for a long time? Is it something you, uh, you know, studied post, post-college? I've been with the Organic Center for about eight years and my focus on organics started, ooh, yikes, 20 years ago? <laughs> time flies. I was the co-owner of a very small organic foods cooperative 
And so I was all in on organic. I knew all about the benefits of organic. And I remember one year I was out visiting my family in Michigan. And this is back before organic had exploded the way it has now. And for the first time, I saw an organic broccoli being sold in one of these big box grocery stores. And so, of course, I bought it. And as I was checking out, I remember the woman who was checking me out looked at it. And then she looked at me and she, with this kind of skeptical tone, she said, does this stuff really taste better? And it made me realize, wow, people have no idea what organic is or why they should buy it. I mean, sure, sometimes organic tastes better, but there's so many other scientific reasons to purchase organic. So at that time, I was majoring in art in college, and I went back and started taking science classes so that I could better understand what science could or couldn't show us about the food we eat, and also how to communicate science to the public. And once I started taking science classes, I fell in love with science and ended up going to graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley, where I got my PhD in biology. And at the same time, I was spending time with my family. My family's from Argentina. So there's also this focus, not just on communication in general, but diversity in sciences. So a lot of my PhD, in addition to working directly on my research program, was spent on engaging with marginalized communities and working on science communication. And so when this job came up, it was the absolute perfect fit for me because it combined my passion for organic with my skills at communicating and conducting science, along with creating a unified research goal among diverse stakeholders. Because as you might have personal experience with, people in the organic sphere are passionate, but sometimes that means that they passionately disagree. So I help create these research coalitions among groups and people who have fundamentally different views of the world so that we can advance organic, not just despite those differences, but so that we can actually use those differences of opinion to build a stronger organic and leverage them to find creative solutions that are outside the box from your standard cookie cutter solution pathways. So it's really fun. The One of the points you made and one of the questions that I'm sure you get all the time, and so I'll just jump to it to to kind of cut to the chase because uh, this is slotted a little later on our agenda, but, you know, I, you, why, you know, why is organic food so much more expensive, right? I mean, this comes up a lot when I talk to people about it. I'm sure, I'm sure you've dealt with this question more times than you'd like to, you know, kind of keep track of. But what, what is the answer ultimately on why is it more expensive and maybe more important than the answer for that? Because I can, you know, certainly, you know, guess on some of the reasons for that. But I want to, let, you know, let you kind of explain. More importantly, though, how do we solve that? Like, how do we make organic food ultimately more affordable? Because if this, you know, it truly is better for the environment, better for people's health, like everybody wins, we should strive to make it as affordable and accessible as possible. But today there's still, you know, significant price difference that is really impactful for, you know, any family kind of middle class, you know, or, you know, down to, to working class, like those price differences make a big, big difference. Simply put, organic costs more because it costs more to make. So organic farmers require more work out in the field. People have to be out there actually pulling weeds rather than just having driving a tractor down and spraying herbicides, which is both a cost, but it's also a good thing because it provides more jobs for people. But when it comes to actually changing the cost, we've already seen that. And I'm sure that you've noticed it as well. In the grocery store, when you go to the grocery store, organic prices have been coming down. I actually had this, this situation where I went to the grocery store the other day. I was going in for crackers 
And I automatically reach for the more expensive cracker, just assuming that's the organic one. And I had this realization where I looked at the cracker prices and the organic one was actually cheaper than the conventional one. So this has been changing. And the reason it's been changing is in part due to research that's getting done on organic farms on how to overcome the agronomic challenges that organic farmers face in the field. So the more research gets done for organic farmers, the easier it is for them to grow organically, the more tools they have and the cheaper it is. And since organic is still this kind of nascent field, we've just started to see this research come into play. And already it's had a huge impact as well as, well as the scalability of organic. So as, as we can increase the scale of producing organically, that also decreases the prices. So we've seen a trajectory of organic prices getting more and more similar to conventional prices. And I think we're going to continue to see that. The other thing that I want to note, though, is that it's important for farmers to still have a premium for the food that they make, because it's really difficult for small and mid-sized farmers today to make a living and to support a family. And so one of the things that we've seen with organic is that it's this economic option for farmers to increase their profitability, even if after they switch over to organic, their yields decrease. The research shows that their profit, their total profitability actually increases. And a few years ago, we gave a um, congressional briefing with the Organic Trade Association about this to members. And what was one of the really cool things about the briefing is that in the room, there were people from both sides of the aisle. It's really not a partisan issue. And the reason they were there is because so many of their constituents are small and mid-sized farmers who are having a really tough go of it. And so we brought in farmers who told the story about having a conventional farm, not being able to make ends meet, switching over to organic and having that save the family farm. So that's another piece of the puzzle is being able to produce food in a way that's supporting farmers. And that, and that makes sense on, especially on the family farm model, right? Because their yield is going to be somewhat capped regardless of their technique and method because they're a smaller operation. With the larger corporate agriculture, which is still on an on a overall scale where most of our food comes from, you know, it, it seems like as long as you know, pesticides and herbicides and, 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 and these kind of augmentation tools are incredibly cheap, which they've gotten so, so cheap. It seems like it's like the, the corporate, you know, or the, the monocropping, this kind of scale farmers are going to continue to gravitate that way until there's more, you know, consumer demand on the organic side. And it's, sometimes I think of it as like a catch 22 where it's like, well, if you want more consumer demand, you got to make it more affordable. And then there's like, well, if we want more, more affordable, we got to have more demand. And it's like, okay, well, which, which one of these is going to come first? Has there been any sort of movement or progress on finding, you know, you know, policy and, and, and kind of government dollars to subsidize organic food, especially in food deserts and, you know, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that really don't have great food options and where, you know, even, you know, 20 cents more on a, you know, per bushel of something makes a huge difference. Have there been any talks on subsidizing truly organic food in certain areas and, and things like food deserts? Well, I know that the Organic Trade Association has been working a lot on that. And keep in mind that conventional food is subsidized. So the reason the prices are so cheap for conventional food is because of these subsidies. Right, exactly. And that's exacerbating these ex environmental externalities. There's also this really unfortunate attitude out there that in food deserts and in communities that have food insecurity, getting any kind of food 
rather than high quality food should be the goal. And so creating better pathways for access to organic food is another one of our goals and the goals of the Organic Trade Association because it's so important for access to extend beyond the privileged classes to quality food that's not produced with toxic pesticides, especially because the communities that are disproportionately impacted by the use of pesticides are those that are already marginalized. So it's kind of this really cruel cycle. Jumping into pesticides as a kind of segue there, one of the definitions that I was kind of confused about the Organic Trade Association, and I know, as you said, you're not that's not the, the the kind of the body you work 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 with, but it's kind of a sister organization. I'm sure you can at least speak to some of the standards. Was around synthetic pesticides. It sort of felt a little vague to me. On you know, it wasn't it wasn't denouncing all synthetic pesticides. It's saying there are. It seems like there are some permitted and some are not. But I couldn't really understand where that line gets drawn in detail on on what's permitted and what's not. Can you? add any color to that around, you know, what synthetic pesticides can be used or in what volume or in what methodology that still allows something to be classified as organic versus not? Absolutely. And first, I'll just kind of clarify that these regulations are not set by the Organic Trade Association by any means. They are created and maintained by the National Organic Program, which is a program of the United States Department of Agriculture. The Organic Trade Association is just that, a trade association of organic industry members, farmers, etc. So the the regulations that you're noting are from the National Organic Program. And the general guiding rule is that if it's synthetic, it can't be used on organic farms. And if it's naturally derived, it's okay to use on organic farms. But there are exceptions where non-organic substances are allowed for use in organic products and on organic farms. And there are cases where naturally derived products are prohibited from use on organic farms because of their toxicity or persistence in the environment. But those cases are the exceptions, not the rule. And for the handful of synthetics that are allowed for use on organic farms, they have to be analyzed by the National Organic Standards Board to make sure they're compatible with organic principles. So there can't be any non-synthetic or organic alternatives. It can't be harmful to humans or the environment. And it has to be generally recognized as safe without any residues of heavy metals or other contaminants. It also needs to be essential for organic production. So an example of an allowed synthetic is hydrogen peroxide. But I have two caveats that I'd like to highlight. One is that, as I mentioned, there are only a handful of synthetic exceptions allowed for use on organic farms. But this gets brought up time and time again. And to me, it's kind of a red herring. You know, why is there so much focus on the few synthetic exemptions to organic when conventional systems have literally thousands of synthetic chemicals approved for use? And those materials are often extremely toxic. And then my second caveat is that one of the things that fundamentally differentiates organic from conventional is that organic farmers can only spray materials as a last resort after they've already tried everything else. Whereas in conventional systems, pesticides are preemptively sprayed or they're a first line of defense. But organic farmers are required to use non-chemical techniques, so things like crop rotation, selecting resistant varieties, using nutrient and water management, providing habitat for the natural enemies of pests, releasing beneficial organisms like ladybugs to protect crops from damage. And it's only after those pest prevention strategies have all failed and the pests are still present that an organic farmer can use the limited amount of pesticides in their toolbox. And I also mentioned that organic standards ban a number of natural pesticides. So things like nicotine or strychnine are all banned from use in organic systems, even though they're naturally derived because their toxicity is too high. So the organic 
it's called the national list, uh, goes both ways. Is that a hard thing to enforce though? And just to give an example, let's say I'm a, a mom and pop farmer and you know, there's some, some synthetic pesticides that I, I want to use, but I want to, I also want my organic status and I more or less, and I, 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 I'm not saying like most people would do this, but in theory, could someone say, Hey, I have tried these six different things and it didn't work. That's why I'm, I'm using this. And you know, how do, how does the, the kind of the certifier in that case, go back in time to sort of prove or not prove does the, you know, does the, the farmer in that case have to have, you know, video and photo documentation of the things they've tried? Like, you know, how, how would you go back retroactively and verify that these alternate techniques have been tried or do we just have to sort of take a farmer's word for it? Well, organic farms get audited every single year and these audits are not perfunctory. They take all day where the auditor, you have to take as an organic farmer, you have to take the auditor through everything you've done step by step, show them proof of what you've done, what you've tried, take them out onto the field. It's, it's a pretty intensive process. And even when organic farmers go through all of those different steps, again, they're only allowed to use a handful of synthetic chemicals that have gone through all these evaluation steps by the National Organic Standards Board to be accepted. And it's also important to keep in mind that any synthetic that gets onto this national list and is allowed as a last resort for organic farmers sunsets automatically every four years. So once something gets on, it doesn't just kind of stay on quietly in the background. It sunsets. Its use goes away after four years unless it's reevaluated by the National Organic Standards Board and once again approved for use. And this National Organic Standards Board isn't just an industry shell. There are industry members on it, but there are also farmers. There are different seats for scientists, for environmentalists, for consumer groups. So it's this really multifaceted board that was developed to prevent chemicals from getting on there that the public doesn't want to see. I want to ask you too about pollinator, pollination services and pollinator health, because it's something that when I was digging around on the, the standards and the, some of the PDFs, I was digging around the, on the OTA site, but I believe those are standards, as you said, that are set by, it's called the National Organic Board, right? Or The National Organic Program is the one that National Organic Program sets the standards that are listed on the Organic Trade Association site. Yeah. And I, you know, there's there's a lot of depth for folks listening. There's a lot of really great reading material there if you want to take the time and a lot of details that are really valuable to know. I didn't see a ton on, you know, sort of the pollination services and, you know, a lot of growers these days and have been for quite some time been been using pollination services, especially crops that are very pollinator dependent. So not like wind pollinated crops, especially bee pollinated dependent crops. So think of, you know, almonds or, you know, crops that are sort of like use a variety of pollinators, but bees have a big influence. So strawberries, blueberries, things like this. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate in that industry of, hey, are we over relying on, you know, farmed and domestic pollinators, the Western honeybee and the migratory beekeeping that, you know, the kind of, you know, sort of moves them across the country, you know, year round to, to do the work and is taking a toll, not only on those bees, and there's also an environmental toll of that transportation, but also it's taking a toll, it seems like on wild pollinators. And, you know, there's, there's discussions around how do we, you know, encourage growers to rely more on wild and native pollinators, you know, be it in the bee species like a bumblebee, more solitary bees or butterflies. And, you know, the, a lot of the wild pollinators are, are really under threat right now. And bumblebees and butterflies are two great examples of species that we've seen massive declines in. And still, there's a big, a big part of the U.S. agriculture industry is using migratory and domestic pollination services. So where where today does the the organic standards stand on pollination services and, 
you know, kind of uh, moving back, you know, towards as much as we can wild pollinator and native pollinator use versus domestic. And where would you like to see that get to? And do you think this is an area that we'll see more changes and innovation in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. And if you want to read more about pollination, I'd encourage people to go to the Organic Center's website. We actually did a report on pollination several years ago that looked at all of the different causes of both native and honeybee decline. And I, you know, I have to tell you, the problem is the decline in native pollinators. And that has increased the reliance on honeybee pollination services. But honeybees aren't the primary reason that we're seeing native pollinators decline. They're certainly not helping the matter, but the main problem is the the factors that are going into decreasing pollinators overall. And when we looked into this at all the research that's out there, there are really three things that are acting synergistically. So the first one is the most obvious one. It's the use of synthetic pesticides, especially insecticides. I remember actually getting asked once by a reporter, why do you think these insecticides are having a negative impact on bee populations? And it took me a second before I was like, oh, because they are built to kill insects, that is their job. So of course they are having a negative impact on bee populations and disproportionately so on native bee populations and other native pollinators. And then that works in tandem with a decline in food sources for pollinators, again, especially native pollinators, and a lack of habitat. And so what's neat about organic is that it acts as it acts as a way to holistically address this problem by providing all three of those things at once. I mean, it dec- you know, it doesn't allow the use of these toxic persistent synthetic pesticides. It provides increased habitat from the diversity of plants that are planted on organic farms and then it also increases diversity of food supplies for pollinators. And you see this especially in hedgerows and other non-crop areas on organic farms. So that's really the synergistic, holistic view we have to have when it comes to pollinators is focusing on how to promote pollinator health and pollinator communities. And what's neat is that there's been a lot of research done on organic farms showing that they have significantly higher levels of pollinators on their farms. And this has been done with both looking at pollinator abundance, so the number of pollinators, which as you say, might just mean a lot of honeybees, but it's also shown increases in pollinator species diversity. So the number of species on organic farms are higher than the number of pollinator species on conventional. So that means that in addition to your European honeybee, you're also seeing a proliferation of native bees. And one of the coolest studies that I've read recently actually shows that those ecosystem services to pollination don't stop at the organic farm boundary. So conventional farms that are nearby organic farms get the pollination benefits as well. So it's kind of this neat benefit that conventional farms can get from having an organic neighbor. Do you see a possibility? And if this already exists, let me know because I couldn't find it. But but you know you know these things much deeper than I do. Do you see a possibility where there will eventually be a true data standard that, you know, along with the other ones that are required to, you know, get that organic label and certification that requires growers and this would have, this would have to be, you know, sort of uh, regulated and, and, and created by crop to have, you know, X percentage of their pollination coming from native pollinators, which also requires growers to do something 
most I don't think are doing at all today, which even measure pollination, which is something I've I've kind of learned in digging into the space. But do you do you see that that be potentially becoming part of the criteria in more of a concrete way to get the organic label? I think what we'd need to see before that becomes part of the conversation is an increased focus even outside of the organic community on pollinator health. Because right now with the monocropping we see, with the chemical use that we see on conventional systems, we are decimating the native pollinator populations. So that's creating this feedback loop where we need to have more honeybees. And I mean, it's even decimating the honeybee population. So before we can think about how we can better rely on native pollinators, we really need to just stop and think about how we can stop killing native pollinators and how we can better support their populations. And the good news is that organic can act as an example for that. This is kind of a lessons learned from the organic industry where we we have these mechanisms in place. We have these strategies and tools that can be adopted by conventional growers to help support pollinator health. And I'm, I'm an optimist because I have seen a lot of these strategies get adopted into conventional systems. And this isn't exclusive for pollinators. I've seen this for soil health, for farmers who are interested in reducing their climactic footprint, where conventional farmers are seeing the strategies that organic farmers are using and taking these techniques that are developed from researchers who are researching organic systems and then employing them and incorporating them into their conventional protocols, which to me is a huge success of organic because it means that it's having impacts beyond just the organic industry. And I've also seen some conventional farmers who slowly adopt one practice or another and then eventually get to the point where they're like, you know, I'm already almost organic. Maybe I'll just transition and then I can get the premium for organic. So it's kind of introduced this new way for transition that I've been seeing where conventional farmers adopt slowly organic practices, see that they work, see that they can cut costs and have longer term um, beneficial impacts and then slowly become organic. One area that I sort of... I'm trying to make sense of because it feels contradictory, and so help like help me understand how it's like how it's not is around the the standards around organic livestock. So for full disclosure here, I'm I'm plant based primarily for environmental reasons, some moral reasons as well, primarily environmental reasons. I also recognize though that like that's not a lifestyle that is easily adopted by everybody for lots of reasons, for health reasons, for access, for affordability, for just culture and habit. These things are hard to change. And so I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm one of those who, anybody who's cutting out a little bit of meat in their diet in the name of the environment, I, I consider like part of the plant-based movement, even if like, you know, they're still, they're, they don't go all the way, they can't. And, you know, my hope is that the the meat industry overall becomes more of a you know, higher price, that's a delicacy that you, you know, have once in a while as kind of a way to treat yourself versus sort of a staple of like every, every plate of food, every meal we have and the most affordable and the cheapest thing out there that the kind of cattle beef industry has, 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 has created, you know, from uh, in the last, you know, since the mid 19th century. And where I'm getting at here is specifically with the cattle industry, probably more so than, other forms of livestock, you know, be it, be it pig and, you know, poultry is the amount of land, right. That is, that is used and cattle industry. And you mentioned at the, at the top, some of the standards around organic livestock are, you know, sort of lots of access to open grazing, you know, to sort of not have that animal, you know, his feed be augmented, you know, with inorganic material. And that makes sense. Like that, like that part is like, okay, that's better for the animal. That's better for the health of the animal. It's better for the mental health of that animal, you know, in the case of the cattle to have free ranging grazing land. But on the other side of that, what happens with creating so much grazing land is, you know, we do end up, it seems like it, we, we, we do end up sort of kind of 
taking over otherwise natural areas that have house more biodiversity and a, and a variety of, of, of agriculture and crops because, you know, we plow that land over for grazing. It's obviously caused challenges, especially in certain species conservation, wolf conservation in particular comes to mind as one that is like constantly in conflict over, you know, ranchers, cattle ranchers wanting vast areas of open grazing land and that, you know, impedes wolf territory there's conflict there and the wolf seems to lose all the time in that conflict and and we know the role of of a wolf as an apex predator in the natural ecosystem as well that we don't want to lose and so the the push towards you know having lots of grazing land for cattle seems to me somewhat contradictory to a push towards biodiversity and you know kind of like regenerative practices because it requires just so much land to be, to be used. How do I like make sense of that contradiction in my, in my head? Well, the way I think of it is really looking at the environmental impacts. So when you look at the environmental impacts of a CAFO, you know, this um, high input system of producing meat, and then you look at the environmental impacts of a grazing system, the grazing system actually acts as a sink for carbon and supports a lot of biodiversity. And you mentioned plowing, but most pasture land is not tilled. So there's actually these positive environmental Uh, outcomes of grazing land. Whereas if you look at a CAFO, which is a very small amount of land, it has this enormous impact on all kinds of environmental health metrics, whether you're looking at climate change or water quality or whatever you're looking at, it has negative impacts. So that's my first, the first thing I think of is, okay, what are the environmental impacts? And then the other thing is to remember that it's not all about yield. The organic standards are actually taking land use into account. So one of the things that was brought up recently was looking at how land has been used because as you voice, there's this concern that land that was part of natural systems will be converted into organic, whether it's grazing land or crop production. And so one of the things that the organic standards is looking at incorporating and has been suggested to be incorporated by the National Organic Standards Board is this idea that is a is a cap on when land can be transitioned to organic based on how long ago it was natural land. So you can't transition land that houses wild habitat into organic. You have to, you can only transition active land. And there's a there's a number of years that I am forgetting off the top of my head, but land has to be used for a certain number of years before it can be certified organic in between being natural habitat. So they're trying to address this issue that could happen, which honestly, we don't see that often. I mean, it's this big concern. And so I'm glad they're addressing it. But it's when you look at organic and conventional, conventional land, you're seeing year after year, massive numbers of acres being transitioned from whether it's forest or prairie into conventional production. You're really not seeing that with organic in the same way. But just in case that does happen in the future or for the rare instances where it does happen with organic, they're starting to take that into account. Also, there's a lot of talk about organic and how it takes more land. And if we transition everything to organic, what's that going to do to our land use? But one thing that I always keep in mind is that that transition towards more organic doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're also going to see dietary pattern changes with that transition. And a lot of the organic farmers that I talk to, especially those that incorporate grazing into their rotations or have integrated um, crop livestock rotations, are thinking about this in a way where they're thinking about consumers not eating the massive quantities of meat that on average per capita we consume in the United States, but eating higher quality meat. So maybe you're eating um, 
slightly less, perhaps you're eating the amount that's recommended by the dietary guidance, but the meat that you are eating is produced more sustainably. The overall carbon footprint and greenhouse emissions from the meat industry, especially when we get into cattle, uh, more so than, than poultry and seafood, especially on the cattle side, are very, very high. And compared to let's say, alternative ways to get the same nutrients. And that's just because the life cycle, right, of that, of that industry is, 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 you know, is compounding, right? Because you, 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 you have to feed that animal. You, there's a lot of water that goes into taking care of that animal. There's a process of, you know, slaughtering that animal packaging that, you know, packaging the meat and all these, just, it's a big, it's a big life cycle process. And that's why almost across the board, right? It's pretty ubiquitous now across most climate scientists that, you know, everyone, you know, kind of always says we need to be eating less meat. And even when I actually, in this podcast, typically at the end, I ask folks, what's the one thing you'd like to see people adopt that, that, that is widely accessible for the most part in their day to day to save the planet. And, you know, you, you get some things of like use less plastic, things like that. But I, I, I did the analysis of every episode I've had, and these people all over the world, because, you know, more than half my episodes are with non us folks and 90% of the answer is eat less meat. And so there's, it seems to be a growing kind of consensus in that regard. And so I guess, is it fair to say like, look, you know, there's, there's, you know, within the organic industry, there is alignment that we probably need to be eating less of of eating eating less meat from a kind of overall standpoint. But that is, like you said, that you know these things aren't happening in a vacuum. That's not going to happen overnight. And you know we're not like the meat industry is going to be here for the foreseeable future. While it is there, even if in a perfect world. We could find a way to, you know, get more people off it, but it, it is there. And so we need to have standards to make sure that, you know, those that are raising livestock are doing it in the most environmentally way possible, even though there's acknowledgement that like, hey, we should be probably consuming less of this. Is that is that fair, fair to say? You know, I'd say that it's not just about eating less meat. It's really also about how that meat is produced. Because when you look at these high intensity feedlots, I mean, <laughs> I've been I've been joking with my colleague that we should just put up a picture of one of these CAFOs and then a picture of an organic operation. It's really intuitive that these are completely different things. And when done sustainably, livestock can be integrated into farming systems in a sustainable way. It's not going to look like a CAFO. It's not going to be as high intensity as, you know, the ones that we see out there. And so I think that is kind of, it's kind of what you're saying is that we can't eat meat sustainably when we're looking at it from a CAFO viewpoint, especially when we're, you know, when we're thinking about going and buying two pound steaks for our dinner, we really need to be thinking about how that meat is produced and whether it's being done in a way that can be done sustainably over the years, which takes both lower density as well as more thought towards the life cycle of the animal. On those, on those industrial feedlots, is it accurate? Because this is also something I found interesting looking at the standards that as an organic farmer, you can you can have organic certification by, you know, even if you use manure from that is originally derived from industrial feedlots. Is that correct or not correct? Yeah. And one of the reasons that's the case is because there aren't enough organic operations right now where we can get the amount of manure needed to use as a substitute for synthetic nitrogen. But as more organic operations arise, we should be able to use more local or even on-farm sources of manure. And the way I look at it is that when organic farms use manure from conventional feedlots or from conventional operations, they're not only benefiting the soil on that organic farm, they're actually reducing the environmental impact 
of that conventional operation because that manure would otherwise be going into a lagoon or, you know, many other um, places where it could then lead to environmental harm. So organic is kind of acting not only as, as a pathway for improving soil health on their own farm, it's also counteracting the negative impacts that could be coming from that manure on conventional operations. So it's kind of this double benefit, in my opinion, where they're, they're making at least a little dent in the large scale environmental problem that um, is associated with conventional operations. And at the same time, we are moving towards under towards having more organic operations, where we'll be able to be more self-sufficient and there'll be enough compost from organic plants and manure from organic animals that can be used on farms. And I've also seen a trend in increase on integrating animals into crop rotations, which is really exciting because that kind of brings everything full circle. You get the you get the livestock that's grazing the whatever the crop may be at that time, probably alfalfa that's integrated into a crop rotation. That's then, you know, the manure from that cow is going directly onto the field. And then the next part of the rotation might have another crop in it that's using the nitrogen from that rotation cycle. And then they plant legumes to regenerate the nitrogen in the soil. It's I'm really encouraged by innovations in in novel crop cycles that integrate animals into these rotations. Yeah, I, I, I the ra- I mean, the rationale you're explaining, I, I could understand it. I and mean, these things are really complex. I'm not sure I, I mean, the, the, like for me, like the the argument back towards the manure is, well, you're also sort of you know, providing, you know, sort of economics back to industrial feedlots um, by buying that manure and per maybe perpetuating that, 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 you know, kind of conventional way. But I, I, these things are nuanced and, and it's not so black and white. And I, and I, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. And certainly the amount of money that they get for manure <laughs> is nothing compared to selling the, the cattle. Yeah. Hail in comparison. Exactly. Let me tell you, that's not how they're making their money. Yeah. Three last questions and I'll let, I'll let you go. I appreciate the time again. The, the first one is, you know, the, there probably is no truer organic farmer than, you know, native communities, native Americans, native people, you know, they, they, they spent they've spent their whole life you know living in in a way that's you know very very in harmony with the environment because that they had to and there there wasn't options for chemical augmentation and you know scaling and these kind of things so i'm i'm curious with that in mind across the organic center and ota and just the you know the bodies and the organizations that are out there is there a strong representation of Native American leaders in these organizations? And is this something that, you know, or is this something that we, we could do better and, and, and we, we should, you know, you, we should be improving the representation of Native people in the organic industry? We need to be improving representation, not only of Native people in the organic industry, but I would say of marginalized communities across the board. We need more representation from black farmers. We need more representation and not just representation, but you know, people of color in leadership positions. So one of the things that we've been working on as has the Organic Trade Association is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. And not just addressing, but also accepting a lot of the racism that's been inherent within agriculture throughout the United States history. So that's something that we need to accept, address, and really incorporate into every aspect of um, the policy initiatives going forward. Yeah, well said. Definitely something to to continue to strive for and, and work towards. Okay, lastly, there's there's two big innovations happening in the food space that I'm very curious on what the organic, you know, industry and and you know will sort of look how they will look at these these changes and these innovations. 
one on the on the sort of plant agriculture side, um, although agriculture of course includes animals as well, but plant you know vegetable plant agriculture, and one on the on the meat side. So let's start with the meat. So cell based meats. Uh, this is something that has you know gotten a lot of funding for again full disclosure i i'm an investor in one of these companies in finless foods and you know for our listeners who don't know about cell based meats Jessica, i'm sure you do it's you know the notion of essentially extracting and immortalizing stem cells from animals and being able to you know sort of adhere them multiply them and adhere them scaffold them in a bioreactor that essentially gets a meat product at the end that is molecular meat this is not like a beyond burger impossible burger that is a plant-based alternative this this ends up being you know kind of scientifically true meat and it's a you know an interesting innovation that you know could potentially allow us to get to scale of providing meat for people without some of the environmental damages that come from raising catching sourcing you know real animals but i also imagine there's going to be a lot of pushback on this being seen as a non unnatural or unorganic sort of you know way of generating generating meat and so knowing this is coming right there's there's companies out there like the one i'm invested in there's memphis meats there's just chicken there's a lot of funding going into this and these things are going to be hitting the market in the next five years. What do you anticipate the organic industry's reaction is going to be towards cell-based meats? You know, I am glad I am not on the National Organic Standards Board because you, you're you talking about cell-based meat, but there are so many innovations going on right now that, you know, we only thought of in science fiction books. It's, I'm, I'm a science fiction fan, so I love seeing all these wild innovations um, come about, but we do have to think critically about what does and what doesn't align with the organic standards. And so one of the things that the Organic Center has been working on is actually a series of conferences that look at agricultural and food technology and start having conversations about how to build a scaffolding for looking at all these new innovations that are coming out of out of research centers that may or may not align with the organic standard. So how do we determine that? How do we decide what is and isn't organic? We have to start having those conversations because we're seeing these really wild innovations all over the place and the rate at which they're getting developed has been increasing. So I don't know, but I think that one of the things that has been happening and is going to continue to happen are discussions about how do we think about organic while thinking about all these new technological innovations. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of heated discussions. We can agree to that. <laughs> there always are in organic. And like I said, that's one of the things I love about organic is how heated people get because they care so much. And it makes for a better standard. If everyone were just kind of pushovers and we're like, eh, whatever, then you wouldn't see as strong a standard as you do today. And it continues to evolve. So I kind of love that. I know it's it can be a little bit much, but I love how fiery people get in the organic sector. The, the other area of food innovation that I wanted to get your opinion on, which is happening faster, it's here now, it's in grocery stores now, is vertical farming. And, you know, again, for context of listeners who don't know vertical farming, it's essentially, you know, sort of growing certain produce, uh, certain produce lends itself to vertical farming better than others. And it's essentially growing, you know, produce in, you know, sort of large indoor facilities. You know, it's called vertical farming because typically they're kind of stacked up. It's, it's sort of a way to use limited, you know, land space, let's say in a city, you know, that, you know, doesn't have the ability to have a lot of local agriculture at scale, vertical farming can supplement some of that, you know, Bowery Farms is, is sort of one that comes to mind that has grown a lot as an, as a, as a startup in the last few years, but there's, there's lots of companies out there doing it. How does the organic industry think about vertical farming and, you know, adopting standards? Will there be unique standards to call something organic that's grown in this, in this way? Will, how do you measure things like the use of electricity, which is probably like the biggest drawback of one of the biggest drawbacks environmentally of vertical farming? You know, what, what will the standards be 
for organic vertically farmed food? Ooh, organic vertically farmed food and hydroponics is a polarizing topic right now. And I really enjoy listening to both sides of the, dis- of the discussion about it. Because on one hand, as you said, you know, it can decrease land use, it can bring food closer to urban areas, which will reduce travel distance, but there's increased energy use, it's not using soil, so you're not building up soil, creating a carbon sink through the soil. So I think we have we have not heard the last of the discussions between vertical farming, hydroponics, and organic, and I am interested to see how it all shakes out. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, I guess we'll have to, on both the vertical farming and cell-based meats, we'll just, we'll have to Wait and see how it all shakes out. (laughs) One thing I can say for sure is that people are going to have strong opinions on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like my hope is in the end, science really prevails and not, you know, kind of politics, which happens a lot in this country, not in just a lot of, in a lot of areas, but because I understand you know, if you're, or, you know, a, a rancher or, you know, a tr- kind of a traditional organic farmer, pro- a produce farmer, you know, you also have jobs and to protect and you have, you know, your revenue stream to protect and, you know, cell-based meats is a competitor in a way and vertical farming is a competitor. And, you know, that typically can sometimes lead to people on both sides, sort of moving away from the science of, 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 of the matter and just going into like, you know, combative politics over like, I got to protect my business more than anything else. And so I think the thing that I hope for is that science prevails, you know, on these debates and discussions, not sort of, you know, not politics, not just purely job protection. I'm not saying job protection is not important, but, you know, jobs do adapt. We adapt, industries adapt, things change. That is part of progress. So if the science ends up supporting these areas, you know, I think the the sort of regulatory side and the 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 politics need to sort of fall in line as well. And I, I guess my biggest hope is that like science prevails above above all else. Well, I'm a scientist, so I am always pushing for science-based solutions. But one of the things that I've had to learn about organic is it's not just about science, it's also about what people want to see in organic. And some people might say, you know, what I like about organic is that regardless of what the science says, this kind of technology just doesn't feel right to me. And so that's one of the things that I've had to really come to terms with working in the organic industry is that it's definitely a science-based standard, but there's also a huge component of what the public wants to see in there. So it's kind of it's kind of this meld of science and society together. Well, Jessica, I've taken up a bunch of your time and I appreciate it. And I think we touched on a lot of great stuff. If our listeners have any other questions in the in the in the podcast notes and the episode show notes, I'll link to the Organic Center and to the Organic Trade Association and some of the standards that are publicized out there so you can check them out. And uh, yeah, thanks for the work you do and and and, and the, the passion and dedication for this space. And, and thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun talking with you. All right. Thanks, Jessica. Bye. Bye.